Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Freaknik to me was a time, an experience in black culture that uh, sparked a lot of what's going on today, be it the music industry, the style of music, the marketability, the promotions, the the understanding of us coming together and, and the value of us. That's what everybody see about us in the South. You mess with one of us in Atlanta, all of us stand up. I'm Chris Frierson, a documentary filmmaker based in New York City by the way of the greatest state in America shaped like a human hand, Michigan. Welcome to Freaknik, a discourse on a paradise lost. So back in Houston, in Bun B's studio, me and him kind of talked about the emergence of the South as a hip-hop force and sort of specifically what Freaknik had to do with it, especially from him being an outsider like myself. By now, you probably already know Bun through the awesome interviews we've had in the series, but if you don't know about his ill raps, you should check him out. Bun was part of the amazingly fantastic rap duo from Port Arthur, Texas, UGK, Underground Kings. I still remember driving around in my Dodge Neon back in 1996, this murderous banger. That track was off of Riding Dirty. I had gotten onto the wave a little bit too late because UGK dropped their first album, Too Hard to Swallow, in 1992. So when did you first hear about Freaknik? Probably around 92, I would imagine, like being in the music industry and talking to other people in the industry and hearing about different things going on, you know, and... Like we had our our um, Black Beach Weekend down here, which was the Kappa Beach Party, and for many years that was kind of what we got ready to go and do. So there was no reason to want to go anywhere. We didn't know people were doing shit in other places. And as I got in the music industry, working with people, you know, what I'm saying from Atlanta, and they started talking about you know the Freak Nick is coming up, and so we actually went to Atlanta to shoot a video during Freak Nick. So we shot the It's Supposed to Bubble video in Atlanta during Freaknik. But we had a, a manager at the time that was from Atlanta that thought it was important that we be in Atlanta during Freaknik. So they rented a tour bus and brought a tour bus. I came up here with a homie of mine, Chris Alexander, and we jumped in the whip and we drove up here, you know what I'm saying, to the Freaknik. We got stuck in the traffic on the interstate right outside, like right at the downtown exit. The Freaknik jam moved from downtown into Midtown. Spring Street, where police have been diverting traffic, was gridlocked, bumper to bumper. A big part of the problem? People stopping their cars for an impromptu street party. So I was like, look, I'm going to go ahead and walk up and go to the hotel and get us checked in because everything was in my name, get us checked in. And then um, I'd just be in front of the hotel whenever y'all 
to make it there. So I walked probably like a half mile from the freeway to the hotel. And then um, probably about an hour after I left them, the police diverted all traffic. So they wouldn't let them exit downtown. And they didn't really know the hotel and where to go. Like, we didn't have cell phones and shit like that. So I had to call Chris's mom and tell Chris's mom exactly where I was at and what happened. It was like, if he call you, just tell him what's going on. And so I was just kind of in downtown Atlanta one day by myself, just watching this whole Freaknik scenario happen in front of me. I was looking at in the distance, you could see like a bunch of crazy shit going on. And you see like a girl dancing on top of a van and then the girl was stopped dancing and the car was getting closer and whatever. And so basically they would, it was a girl in a van and they was like, yo, if y'all throw X amount of money, she gonna get butt naked and dance right here. People started throwing money at the van. Then the girl got out the van and got butt naked and started dancing on top of the van. Then they put her back in the van and they went down to the next corner. And they just did this for block after block. And I was like, okay, so there's some pimping and all of this shit going on around here. It was really, really crazy. Like just the amount of people that were walking the streets, you know, I guess scantily clad. You know, a lot of bras was half fucking naked walking down the street like just the idea of girls in thongs just in multitudes walking the street that was and it blown my mind freaking was a vibe like a like a feeling and who better to describe it than jt money who again can describe things in a lot cooler way than i can Freaknik was the city. The city of atlanta was jumping from the underground to the malls to the you know what i'm saying who is jt money you ask One-fifth of Poison Clan from Miami. They signed to Luke Records in the early 90s. Everybody was waiting on Luke to throw his party because they know. And I'm talking about executives from everywhere. They want to go to Luke party because it's going to be a freak show. Remember Mr. Collar Park from last week? While cruising around Decatur, he gave me his take on Luke. Luke used to have his RBI here and, and the baddest bitches you ever want to see. Luke had this tour bus with this bitch on the side with a tongue this goddamn long. Going down the side of the tour bus. God damn. <laughs> when I tell you, Luke, a two live crab concert, yeah, 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 man, have you ever good. seen a two live? No, not in person. Man, they would take a bitch from the crowd and their dancers, females, would put whipped cream on them from one ankle to the other on the inside and lick that shit out. Yeah, they eat, eat each other pussy on the stage. Hey man, that's the wildest, two live crew concert is the wildest shit yeah. you ever wanna see in your life, yeah. So, you know, cause all the rest of them, you know, just picture dinner at this shit and they playing elevated music and they eating, mm, finger food. Luke and said it was liquor, <laughs> liquor, chicken wings and bad bitches. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> It's amazing. But that, that set that the tone here, for yeah. how wild we used to be. Like, yeah, when we out here how the fuck like Easy this. E got fucked up and Luke still walk around this bitch. <laughs> 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 I think Easy E was murdered, dog. <laughs> <laughs> that, that 
don't add up. <laughs> that shit, I don't see no Luke, Uncle Luke, a.k.a. Luke Skywalker, government name, Luther Roderick Campbell, was a leader of True Life Crew. And those guys totally shook shit up at Freaknik from a musical perspective. But they also kind of changed the game for both Atlanta and Freaknik OGs, like Sharon Toomer. I aged out, and what I call age out of Freaknik is you graduate and you move the hell on with your life. That's right, that's, that's, so you don't go back and hang out. Back then, that's what it was. And it wasn't until the 90s when Luke blew up Freaknik in one of his songs. I was like, is this Freaknik? So what was a Luke party, a Freaknik Luke party? What was it? Um, an experience, a, a, a must-see experience. Like, you had to. And then once you got a taste of it, you wanted some more of it. Like, they were salivating over this stuff, man. So on some scholarly shit, Dr. Regina Bradley wanted to know if at any point in this process, we were going to go directly to the source. You said you're going to talk to Uncle Luke. I'm yeah. really curious to hear his thoughts. Because, I mean, like, his music was like the soundtrack for so many of these things. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, no, you can't have a freak, Nick, without two live crews. Who are the freak, Nick Kings? I would say you would be one of those people. <laughs> I'm the freak. So that, I guess that's why you're here. Yeah. That's the one and only Luke. Obviously, you know, we had to go see him. So we took a trip down I-75 to Miami and met up with him at his crib. So when was the first time you went there? Oh, the first time I went to Freaknik? Man, don't ask me about no dates. I'm not good with dates and years. <laughs> I forgot a whole lot of dates and years for, for many different reasons. <laughs> but uh, I remember going to Freaknik. Probably my first time going there was uh, to promote music because it was a place where all the young people were at. So it was just a matter of going there and promoting, and hopefully these young people would like the music and and uh, and buy the music. Uh, probably that was the first time. The second time, uh, you know, after I became real popular, then I got invited there, uh, Freak Nick, to do a, a concert. Right. Uh, I think it was like this underground club. The underground club that Luke is referring to is Underground Atlanta. It's a, it's a landmark in the city. A shopping and entertainment area downtown dubbed like sort of a, a city beneath the streets that was really popping naturally during Freaknik. Our man George Hawthorne ran that shit back in the day. The underground was a urban festival mall. Basically, we had uh, 225,000 square feet of of retail that included an entertainment and festival, a lot of clubs and areas. And I know I was a manager there from 92 through 94, beginning of 95. And basically in the early years of Freak Nick, we had 15,000 in 92, up to about 50,000 in 93. And at that time, 
I was already banned in the USA, so me coming to go to the underground uh, became a major, major incident. Two live crew went on trial in Fort Lauderdale, Florida on Tuesday, charged with singing obscene songs for paying adults during a nightclub performance last June. The key to the prosecution's case in this trial was proving that the crew's material had no artistic or political value and that it was obscene. The streets was closed and, and police were standing there waiting for me to sing the, the explicit lyrics like every other city around the country. And I eventually ended up doing it and sneaking out the back door probably ended up in a riot or something. And then probably the next time I came, maybe years after that, because, you know, the mayor at the time was like, y'all can't invite Luke and the two live crew back. And uh, I eventually did another show at, at the park. It was a lot of cars from different states. Like, you know, I saw Benzes from Michigan and BMWs from Illinois and shit like that. And oh, that was the first time I saw Magic Don Juan, like in the green Cadillac, driving through with all the green shit on. I was like, this is crazy. Like, what the fuck? This freak Nick shit is wild. Dr. Bradley, a 2016 Nazir Jones hip hop fellow at Harvard and current professor at Kennesaw State University, taught me something cool about music and cars. That's my quiet storm voice. So, actually, I was talking about this in my class last week. We were talking about this idea of the car test. You know what the car test is? Mm-mm. So the car test is if you listen to something and it knocks, you give it a second listen. Whereas if you're, like, from Northeast or somewhere like that, you know, folks listen to the lyrics first. We don't care about the lyrics. We care about the beat first. Kind of like you kind of listen to where the boom's coming from. Right. That's where the the party is starting to pop off. I mean, like, this is, this is music. Like, bass music is such a prominent fixture in Southern hip-hop. I mean, like, he wasn't lying when he said that I started Southern hip-hop. I'm going to say this shit right here today. I started hip-hop in the South. He's the ambassador of the freak. Like, <laughs> he introduced this possibility. Like, if you think about bass music that was coming out of Florida, of course you had the Caribbean influences, so dance hall, um, soca. And then it's interesting what happens when bass makes it to Atlanta. It slows down. Like, it slows down a lot. Like, you know, you... You, you have to be ready and fully hydrated to dance to back-to-back Luke songs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, can't just, you can't just jump out there and be like, I'm ready. No, you need to prepare yourself. Um, and, I mean, like, his the music that he was making, it was, you know, I sound old, but it was raunchy. But it was like the beat was hidden and all of these things. Like, this was the music that you hear let's go into the club. Right. Um, I'm like, yeah, it was just kind of like that, that bass music had an era. It had a moment. You know what I'm saying? So in addition to your two live crews and your Uncle Al's and all of them, you also had like, you know, Jermaine Dupree and the So-So Def Bass All-Stars. You know, the music that you were doing, I've been told, and I'm again, this goes to that general shit, was sort of a foundation of those early years of Freaknik. If you were to explain what Miami bass and Miami hip hop were at that time to like, you know, a 50 year old white lady from Minnesota, like what was that? Miami bass is the makeup of of our city. When we created it, when I, you know, discovered Two Live Crew and they came down and eventually ended up getting with the guys and eventually ended up in the group because no other record label wanted them. 
And then we started making music from a Miami perspective based on what we were already doing. What I was doing as a DJ, you know, speeding up records, whether it was T. LaRock, original concept, divine sound, Mantronics, speeding up the music and, you know, creating deeper bass uh, with a faster tempo. From my understanding, Luke brought the bass up from Miami to Atlanta, and much like crack cocaine, that shit spread like wildfire. Mr. Color Park, who grew up in Atlanta, already had a distribution network in place. On our drive, Color Park took us to the old stomping grounds of King Edward J., the godfather of the Atlanta mixtape. Apparently, this is what he wanted to show us. So we pull up to this whack-ass mini-mall to reminisce. Mall to mall action. So we're getting off. This is Candler Road. This is South Decal Mall right here to the right. All right. So this is the east side where King Edward J, Reverend King Edward Landrum, <laughs> owned the record store. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember you took up. Now I remember. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't the first location, but this is probably the most popular location okay. uh, when he posted up over here. And so mixtapes, $10 for 60 minutes, and for 90 minutes, it was a nifty $13.50. And when did he start doing this, and when did it this end? This was the 80s. He started in the 80s. I got with him probably around 89, 90. I probably became one of his more popular DJs, but MC Shy D. Uh, DJ, uh, DJ Man, they were all affiliated with this. Success and Effect, with Roll It Up, My Nigga, Kizzy Rock, Player Puncho. It was the first official DJ crew out of this city. So this was the heartbeat, sonically, of the east side, and it bled over right. through other parts of the city. Because you didn't have the internet. You had to actually have a cassette, a right. copy of this shit. It was like his own record company. Because you got to think, this was before we had a hip-hop station here. So you could get hip-hop on Friday nights from 10 to 12 or some shit on the Fresh Party. Other than that, there was nowhere else to hear it. Mm. You know, so the mixtape was everything. Right. So you can either go buy, spend 15, however much an album costs, and buy one album mm -hmm. and listen to 20 songs from a motherfucker you only like three or four songs from. Right, right, right. Or you can come buy one of these mixtapes and get everything you like right. on one. He was, like like I say, the first official dude doing that. Right. So that's why it spread the way it spread. But it started over here. Everybody came over here to get these motherfucking tapes. And were the tapes largely Atlanta artists? Yeah. That's what the, the, the soundtrack of Freaknik, that's why it's relevant. Mm -hmm. So through the 90s, leading up, to, to the, the the glory freak Nick years and all that shit. You had a J tape, all that Luke, tag team, Kilo, all that shit was on these tapes. Mixed the fuck up by badass DJs. We linked up with another badass DJ, Nabs from V103, one of Atlanta's first hip hop stations. And before that, he was Criss Cross's DJ, which is extremely important to me because back in the day, I used to try to wear my pants to the back with a little slack because inside out, it's wickedy, 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 whack. Doing the whole part of, of 
my experience with Freak Nick, which I would say is 1988 to 1997, the soundtrack was definitely the bass, dancing, Miami bass, Atlanta bass movement. You know what I mean? Um, but also simultaneously, because we got a radio station in 95, which is, and then I joined that station in 96 because Crisscross had slowed down. So I, I did Crisscross about four years on the road. 96, now Freak Nick is the whole city. Right. Um, and now we had a rap station. Now we're playing everything. You know, we're playing all this stuff on the radio, Puffy, Outkast, you know what I mean? So the soundtrack just got broader. One of the dudes who made the soundtrack broader, Rico Wade, record producer from Organized Noise, the team responsible for some of TLC's biggest joints, a million other things, as well as the production team behind Outkast. So now I got control. Not just am I looking for a group, I got a place to take them. I got somebody waiting on me saying that I'm good. Like, like whatever you want to do, you bring a girl artist, like whatever you want to do, because you the one put together TLC, you the one did this, you want to produce this group, you got a vision. Whatever you want to do, bring it to us. And that's when I had a chance. Outcast was the first thing we did. I went, I mean, I found Big and Dre. They could rap. That's all I needed. They was very New York type MCs that was from the South. I just said they was young enough to where they was in high school, 10th grade. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, UGK is 92, 3-6 Mafia, I think first project might be 91. You know what I'm saying? Andre and Big Boy, they come in around maybe 90, 93, 94 with Players Ball. But everybody's got the same kind of experience, right? Like, you know, being, you know, now we look back and, you know, you would call these acts legendary and trendsetters, but... We're the only people that saw ourselves that way. And it was very hard for us to convince the powers that be to see us in that same way. You know what I'm saying? And always being underrated and underestimated and just never really fully appreciated at the full spectrum of the, of the game. You know, that's why you see outcasts, you know, they're frustrated. You know what I'm saying? Because Southern artists, man, at the end of the day, you know, we're doing everything that everybody else from everywhere else is doing. But it's like we just don't get any credit for the effort or the talent. You know what I'm saying? Well, why do you think that is? Is it like some Southern shit? Or like well, I think it's like, again, this is all about proximity. You know what I'm saying? Because you don't have people from the South judging or critiquing or reviewing or rating people from the South. So there's no frame of reference for a lot of the cultural references that we're making, um, geographical references that we're making, the slang that we're using. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. A lot of people just didn't know what the fuck we were saying. You know what I'm saying? Right. We always had to prove ourselves to everybody about everything. We always brought everything we had to the table and, you know, even just in the terms of trying to get record labels to um, acknowledge how to market and promote the product. They didn't didn't understand it in its core, so how could they sell it, you know? I interviewed Bun the other day. Bun B. He was talking about the South in general and how these sort of bonds were formed. It seems like that all you guys came together and formed like this sort of special shared experience. Being from the South, never never hanging out with each other, but understanding if you're from the South, you we're not we're not getting respect. So like Scarface and the Ghetto Boys, well, yes, they had the lights on in Houston. Um, Luther Campbell had the lights on in Florida. JT Money, they had the lights on down there. But they not respecting y'all really as hip-hop. We on the East Coast a little bit with Atlanta, 
and these two boys I got, Big and Dre, they rapping. They rapping like they trying to get at whoever the best is in New York. So I think that was going to be our way in for the respect to me. So like, but the fact that we was from the South, we had to, we couldn't lose the respect from them. Oddly or not so oddly, the sort of lack of respect given to Southern rap music by the establishment, you know, the, the East and the West, so to speak, weirdly reminds me of the way that the Kennedys used to shit on Lyndon Johnson just because that nigga was from below the Mason-Dixon. Shouts to Bobby's hair, though. Never not on point. So they heard they heard all the barbecue. They heard all about the, the thick girl. They was like, oh, shit, B-boy from the South for real. They talk their country, their grandma. But this music is not just competitive. It's purposely not trying to sound like the West Coast. Because if you, if, you, if you have too many of those, the whistle sounds in your music. They're going to automatically say, oh, this is Dr. Dre. Oh, this right. is from this. So we made a point to be like, nah, we got to do music without feeling like we're just, because they're not going to respect the MCs if they think right. we're just copying the music from out there. And then the East Coast part was based on the drum sounds. New York respects hip-hop drums and not ones they heard before. Right. So if you can find a way to, and we were digging. We were going to New York, going to Brooklyn, going to Queens, going to um, Manhattan, going to the, the village down there shopping, buying old breaks and stuff and, and putting that. That's why we could produce so many different artists because we was, we we had a plethora of, of goodies to, 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 to dig from or whatever. So that that's what was important. That's why Organized Noise and Dungeon Family is so influential when it comes to hip hop. It's because we thought like the only way we could get in is by making a difference. Like like not right. just, not, not, not coming up with a one hit wonder, but really like sh showing our worth. It was never about us thinking we were better. We just wanted to show that we was on your level. Anthony Demby, my colleague John's homeboy, who you might remember from episode two, regaled one of his favorite music memories from Freaknik. It involved drugs. When I first heard about it, it was like this mystical party that Atlanta, everyone goes to, and, and everyone kind of has this experience. And so I was curious about it for a while. I remember smoking my first joint in life at a far side show. John told me this. Describe that experience. Okay, so they had this show at this club in the middle of a junkyard in Atlanta. And me and my friends go there, and it was just like this moment where they played the song Pack the Pipe. And that earlier that day, we had bought weed from our friend Shakir. Rest in peace, he passed away. Um, went to Morehouse with me. Um, we bought weed from him at a gas station. And I remember he gave us a book and said, page 50 is really interesting. And he just like left. And there, the joint was wrapping the pages of the book. We smoked that spliff at the show. And I remember we passed it to, far, to Fatlip from Farside on stage. He smoked it and passed it back to us. I was like, my life, that was the, the pinnacle of my life right there. I could just die today. I smoked a joint with Fatlip. For the, in my first joint ever during Freaknik at the Farside show in the junkyard. And you can't make that shit up. That's pretty fucking dope. Yeah. Anthony caught that Far Side show during Freaknik, which is funny because I would have never thought that the Far Side, this hippie rap group from Los Angeles, would be down there during that event. But that kind of speaks to the comeuppance of Atlanta and its importance in the hip-hop game. Just as a disclaimer, Savannah required me to say the word comeuppance. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but it sounds so good. It's not the right word. <laughs> That's why I said that. Okay, whatever, as you were. Anyway, the South rises again. Big Gip. 
when we were doing Southern Playeristic, that was the first time that we did another video in the hood. That was the same weekend as Freaknik. And, bro, we started the video in the morning in, uh, in Lakewood. We start, that's when we start off with Outcast standing on the porch, and I walk up and say something to him, and when the video start. The next shot was downtown on Peachtree in a club in uh, Deion Sanders. We did the, the scene with Dre shooting. That's uh, that's kind of, that's Dion's club. It was Club Dion, and downstairs was the Wu-Tang store. Real talk, growing up in the 1990s, surrounded by white people, my shit was Nirvana, Bush, obviously the aforementioned 311, praise to the gods, and shit like Smashing Pumpkins, etc., etc., etc. Legit, I got back into hip-hop in the ninth grade when this black dude, who's like one of the only other black kids in my school, wanted to listen to rock and roll music. And so we had this weird swap where I was to give him Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness in exchange for his Wu-Tang Forever double album. Embarrassing, I know. It's a good trade. Wu-Tang came to Freaknik? Yeah, Wu-Tang was here. This is where we met uh, Cocaine, Above the Law. Also, people got to understand that that Freaknik was also the first time that the West Coast came here. It's like people don't understand that all during those times, those were the first times that we was meeting each other. It, it's the first time that we seen like Biggie them walk around. You know, everybody was really walking around like some real big kids. Like when I go back and look at it, everybody was like, "Yo, we happy. We out the city. Like, what well, the fuck? We got a record. Like, it, what? You got to remember, everything was new. Nobody knew what it felt like to be platinum. Right. It made us feel finally rewarded for for just so many years of uh, people not even understanding what we was doing because you got to understand at one time, like, people was just around here like, yo, we from the South, we only do shaky Buddha music, and we had to come out of that. Oh, Freaknik was, was everything because that was the first time I met Too Short. After that, Freaknik, Too Short moved to Atlanta. As Gip intimated, Freaknik was more than just an event, like just a festival or whatever. It was a space where black people were re-emigrating to Atlanta, the capital of the South. And in tandem, at the same time, a space where hip-hop artists from all over the South were connecting over newfound fame. Here's Too Short. I think um, the Freaknik was the most popular event as far as all these different regions flocking to Atlanta. And I think when you flock to Atlanta for a reason like that, you, you always leave with something. You leave with... You know, okay, like Freak Nick 93. I think the hottest song might have been Whoop, there it is. These three words mean you're getting busy. Whoop, there it is. Hitman. There's a local Atlanta song. I got there. I, whether I knew about it or not before I got there, I knew about it when I left. And when I left, it was a big record. I think a lot of that record success. Had to do with Freaknik 93 and all of us leaving and going back with that stuck in our head because it played at all the strip clubs, it played at every party, and people was just walking down the street going, whoop, there it is. It was just like a thing. Was it like joining like a family that it was it had existed before? That's how the way it sounds like you're saying. The founders, the people who built the foundation of the Atlanta music scene were a family. It was a 
it was a close knit family and it was ran like a family. It felt like a family. People invited you to their houses, to their private parties, to their functions. Uh, we used to, you know, just stop by each other's studio. No, no invitation. Like, you know, it felt like Detroit Motown. And one thing about Atlanta, and the reason why Atlanta is so special at the end of the day, is that we want everybody to have money and power. And that's something that once we once we figured out the power and the the the, the strength of our city after the Freaknik that year ninety three ninety four, that's when all of us realized how much power we had, and that's when all of us felt like that we was gonna make sure that nobody was gonna come in here and take our city over. That's what everybody see about us in the south. You mess with one of us in Atlanta, all of us stand up. That's what other cities don't have. And that's why Atlanta right now is still special. And that whole attitude started from the Freaknik. Because, I don't know, it's going to be hard for any city to kind of knock Atlanta out of the box. And people don't understand why. I say, you know why? Because we the only city that got 200 strip clubs open every day. And these kids do not need radio, never. All they got to do is go to their neighborhood strip club like Blue Flame and play their record. If everybody jump around in there, they know they got one. <laughs> you can't do that in no other city. Atlanta's strip club culture has always been special because those were the first superstars. Whoop, daddy. Whoop, daddy. Hey, man, it started right in Magic City and turned into an international hit. You know what I mean? So for us... We saw real platinum records and real success out of the strip club culture. When we were kids, we didn't listen to lyrics. That's why it was different when people heard our music. We didn't listen to lyrics like how hip-hop kids may listen to lyrics on a train, listening to hip-hop. See, we all came up with cars and had speakers in the back of our cars. So if the speakers didn't jump, we ain't really listening to that music per right. se. You know what I mean? That car test that Dr. Bradley spoke about was a real thing. Car speakers had to quote-unquote jump, and if they didn't jump, the beat didn't hit. I can speak from personal experience. I had some ill subwoofers in my Oldsmobile Intrigue. This was after the neon, but I know what that means. It's that thing where you just always want people to hear your shit. But I digress. Back in Atlanta, strip clubs were also a place to test out new jams. So for me, it became a marketing tool for me because here's a, here's a thing I want to lay claim to Yin Yang and myself. We didn't start the, the idea of promoting in the strip club. However, I want to say we were one of the first, if not the first, group that made strip club music right. I mean songs directly for the strip club and, and Whistle While You Twerk we named all the strip clubs in Atlanta we didn't think that bitch was going nowhere outside of 285 if you remember there was a time in hip hop in the, in, the, in the 2000s where you had to have that one record for the strip club on your album 
it was a marketing tool to break music that was made for that. And not like mad people, like that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, it's common. Yeah. It's common. I'm taking my shit to Magic City because I made it for Magic City. So the, the strip club to me means something different. I saw it as a, as a different kind of bag. What was Freaknik <laughs> like? Freaknik back in my day was the real Freaknik. That was not the nonsense they tried to put together later on in life. Speaking of magic and magical people, here's our homegirl, brand manager Katrina Fuqua, to speak on said brand. We opened in 1985, so I came four years after. And even back then, when I was in college, I knew about Magic City. But of course, I wasn't old enough to come in. But I knew about the club just because you heard it in rap songs even back then. Like, you heard rap songs that mentioned Magic Cities in the 80s. So it was like, so, okay, what is Magic City? But you know, it was still like a buzz. So what are Magic City Mondays? Oh, my God. Monday, yeah. Monday is our crazy night. So, and it's really weird because it's, as you say, a Monday. But... My philosophy, this is just my philosophy, is that on Monday is when a lot of the athletes have off. Got you. So that's like when the Falcons are off on Mondays after Sundays, some of the basketball players are off. So they, that's when they will come and hang out. And so Jermaine Dupree, he would come and bring his artists, his friends, his artists here on Mondays. And a lot of athletes would be here. And that just kind of built and built. And then they actually started calling it Magic City Monday. And that just took off. And it's been that ever since. That's a unique thing to me. Like, I, I did this project with these artists, these city girls, and they their whole thing is, like, when they started, they just put their music out mm -hmm. in strip clubs. Mm -hmm. And now they're... They're big. They're big. I mean, most big, most big artists did that. I mean, like I said, again, go back to Future, go back to Migos. Theirs was broken in strip clubs. Atlanta. Thank you for tuning into this week's Freaking Joint. We are off next week, but we will be back to talk more about strippers, Freak Nick, all things Atlanta on August 6th. See you there. That's that quiet storm thing again. Peace. Freak Nick, a discourse on a paradise lost, is a production of Mass Appeal and Endeavor Audio. Created, produced, and narrated by myself, Christopher Friars. Atlanta. Executive produced by Chris Colbert of DCP Entertainment. Produced by the one and only Savannah Jeffries, Mark Grandy, and Matt Graylin of Mass Appeal. Edited by Cher Vincent, Keith Meminger, and the dude with the best name in the office, Chris Bravo. Executive produced by Dave Easton and produced by Hannah Cope of Endeavor Audio. Technical producer, Nick Pacciano. Assistant edited by Jefferson Espedia and Louis San Giorgio. Archival production by Jillian Bergman. Associate producers Jackie Garofano, Brandon Tago, Adele Coleman, and John Klonowski of DCP Entertainment. We were mixed by the lovely Sue Polino. Music supervision by Carolyn Mislove. And our finishing producer was Stephanie Pacciano. Thanks again, Steph. And last but not least, talent booking and all-around support, the Honorable Roberta Magrini. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.